Hello, and welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. We are bringing you conversations with innovators, creative outliers, misfits, rebels, and crazy ones from the Sense Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. My life has been spent seeking out extreme perspectives to inspire creativity and help some of the world's most innovative companies to be more innovative. Today, we're talking to the misfit, magician, nature lover, and experiential storyteller, Jeffrey Abrahamson. Keep listening as we discuss the smell of dead rats, butterflies, and the importance of nature, why having misfits in a business is as important as having a CFO, and we talk to Jeff about his experiences at the intersection of creativity and business and how the films of the Coen brothers inspired him to go to NYU Film School, his time running Gen Art in New York to promote up-and-coming artists and fashion designers, and parachuting, how to deal with the creative setbacks that are out of your control, and why we need to expect these things to happen. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you doing? I'm good. It's a, it's a holiday here, but I'm kind of got a lot going on in my head because I'm excited about things I'm doing so and I understand it's hot in Los Angeles today as well it's been a very hot weekend uh 110 degrees Fahrenheit I think that's somewhere over 43 Celsius um and uh it's been a good this is the first time actually well you can't see but uh that I have my shade open and I'm letting some light in uh all weekend well thank you for joining us for the extreme perspectives podcast uh, you know, this is all about us having a good conversation and getting to know each other a little bit better and, you know, just talking about what's going on for you and what projects you've got going on at the moment. But I'd always like to start with my first question, which is, what are you, Jeffrey? An outlier, a misfit, a rebel, or a crazy one? So, as I was thinking about this question, the, the first thing that popped to mind was that I'm a misfit. I think that past therapists would say that I'm an outlier, but I, I think that um, my zagging when other people zig has um, at times made me feel more like a misfit, that I, I'm not quite on the same page as other people, um, or they're not on the same page as me, because I'm always on the periphery, uh, you know, trying to see what's, what's around the corners and the nooks and crannies. Well, you're in good company here. That's probably why we've, we've got to know each other through the network. So I'd love to, you to tell us a little bit more about being on the periphery and a little bit just more about your, your life journey and your sort of your creative journey. Sure. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think the misfit uh, comes, goes way back into my elementary school days when, uh, you know, I was, I was a bit bullied and uh, a teased kid for liking things that they didn't necessarily, they weren't into either yet or ever. Um, and I think that those formative years were really important to me because they, they helped me to really build my um, emotional intelligence. And I started to care tremendously about other people that I saw that were misfits and wanting to align myself with them. And then I kind of saw myself as a bit of a, a conduit. I really wanted to expose people to the things that I would notice and see. And that was uh, oftentimes through either uh, storytelling or new technologies. Um, I was very lucky that my mother has a very innovative soul and she uh, was always exploring new technologies and had the resources to do such too as lucky. I was thinking earlier before this conversation how when I was also in elementary school, she brought home something, a computer called the Play-Doh which I, trying to remember it this morning, was having a hard time finding it because I thought it was Play-Doh, like the, um, you know, the clay that kids play yeah. with. So I couldn't figure it out. No, it's Play-Doh, like uh, the philosopher. And it allowed me to um, have conversations with people that were in different places by typing messages. And that was long before any form of internet chat popped up as uh, ubiquitous. And she also had the very first VHS video cameras. And I, you know, was playing with those as young as, uh, well, I, I mean, I have, I have my birthdays recorded since I was five years old. Um, well, not, not through my adult years, but. Wow. So, yeah, I think that like those, the access to these things um, really early on, both 
got me excited about new technologies, helped me to, you know, really care and want to share with other people what the way I was seeing the world. And, you know, storytelling became the main mechanism for that. And I became very enthralled with the world of cinema and knew from seventh grade that I was going to get into Hollywood or filmmaking. So Jeff, tell me, why did your mom have all these cool toys for you to play with? That's a really good question. I'm not really sure what her initial exploration into technology was all about, but my family does have this, all of us, we have a, a, a gene that makes us really, it's an exploratory gene. We just want to know what's next, what's around the corner, what's like coming down the pike, like, you know, we're, it's just a part of our DNA. And um, we also, in early days, had coined a term uh, called misophobia, which to us was the fear of missing out, which later, of course, became FOMO. But my family had misophobia early on in, in our own little family. That's very cool. And, and whereabouts were you in the world growing up? I was in uh, a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I went to St. Louis Park High School, which um, has a few well-known uh, graduates, including the Coen brothers, the filmmakers, which uh, w helped know knowing that they had come through the same program had inspired me even more to get into filmmaking. So my, my chemistry teacher sent me in 11th grade to uh, the Walker Art Museum to see a film called Barton Fink uh, that one of her alumni had made. And it changed my world because uh, uh, there was a Q&A and Joel Cohen was there and I, I you know, I'm like, I want to make movies. What should I do? And he said, uh, well, I went to New York University for a year. Then I dropped out. That's what he said. But uh, uh, so I ended up going to New York University uh, because I, I, you know, it just felt like the city was a place to be exposed to all these things. It was my drug, you know, as somebody who wanted to be um, uh, constantly, you know, inspired. And uh, when I visited schools, there was, I mean, New York was, was by hands down the winner. Yeah, nothing, nothing really beats that vibe. I get that big time. It's almost like if anyone was ever to accuse me of being a vampire, it's, <laughs> it's the energy of New York that I would be sort of thriving on because I don't know what right. it was for, for, for decades uh, that it just gave me that energy and a sense of possibilities and wonderment. There's always something new to be discovered. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but I'll say that after 15 years of living there, I felt really exhausted and I couldn't tolerate that level of bombardment uh, on, a, on a daily basis anymore. So I, I eventually, you know, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but um, started to, to reconnect with my deep appreciation of um, nature and found myself riding my bike out of the city further and further. And, and one day just deciding like, I don't want to live here anymore. Now it took me three more years to, to leave and move to Los Angeles to the beach. But, you know, I think that it's everything in moderation. And uh, sometimes the big cities, um, you know, among other things, they disconnect us from what's really core. You know, we're kind of, you know, we've created these, we've created cities and these mechanisms to really, um, you know, ha have distraction and, something that feels important, but, you know, one of the things that bothers me about big cities more than anything is um, our disconnection from the universe. We, yeah. we, we, it's so bright, you can't see the stars. And uh, as, as much as you thrive on it, it, it can dislocate you from yeah. sort of all the things that are actually important about being a human being. And I think, yeah, striking that balance is the best thing. So when you're living in the city, just out of interest, wh whereabouts were you living? I'm guessing you were living in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, if I had left Manhattan towards the end of the years there um, to Brooklyn, where people were starting to go, uh, I might have stayed longer. It was more tolerable. But for whatever, well, for reasons we won't get into here, having to do with a girl and a dog, I stayed in the city. Yeah. Um, but I, um, I lived uh, in, in, the, in the village around NYU at Washington Square Park um, in Union Square which were great, but I, you know, I was, again, during school, I, I was surprised that this was rare, but I was one of those people who, you know, would throw on my rollerblades and go explore all of Manhattan. But most people just stuck down by the campus. 
I had, you know, the city was my school. So then I moved to the, to the Upper West Side after school because I had a, an apartment to squat in. My buddy's uncle's place um, was available. And uh, so you take the free, yeah. free, the free housing when you're living in New York for as long as you can. For sure. So tell me a little bit about film school. You mentioned some of your references. You saw the Coen brothers. And, yeah. You know, coming out. Coming out of NYU, you know, where did you start to get your first break or what sort of projects did you work on? So NYU, my taste shifted. So I, it really started shifting when I saw the Coen Brothers movie. I was, I was a Spielberg kid. I was a big, you know, Hollywood fanciful, big dramas um, type of kid. Empire of the Sun by Steven Spielberg is actually my all-time favorite movie, Young Christian Bale. Christian Bale, I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, we, he was 11, I was 11. Like it was, my mind was blown. I wanted to live inside that movie. In fact, I, I did toy with acting in high school too. Musicals, I sing better than I act, but that's a different podcast. So I realized though that I was into quirkier films. So I found Terry Gilliam, movies like Brazil, Tim Burton, you know, uh, Beetlejuice was my entry point, but um, you know, all his subsequent films, uh, his his Dracula, like things like that were really just, blew my mind. I also discovered in school that I was more of a producer than uh, a director. I was really confused by this. I didn't really understand at the time that you could be a quote unquote creative producer. So you could be somebody who's very creative, um, who can contribute to story, who can contribute to design and, you know, um, overall, see now I speak very tech, but user experience. But at the same time, it's also very creative about you're, on, you're very entrepreneurial. Like, how do you get things done? How do you make, you know, find money? How do you find uh, locations? You know, locations is actually a very creative job, um, but on paper, it's very logistical. So I was doing that kind of work through school and there were so few of us that had sort of self-determined as being producers in a sea of directors that we were able to work on some of the coolest projects. So that was... Uh, so, you know, that shifted things for me. Just to stop you for a moment, I think that's really fascinating because that's, you, you talked about having that self-awareness. And I think this is one of the kind of fascinating things about these conversations. We all kind of reach these, these junctions. They're not crossroads, right? They're junctions because you're going director or producer. When you reflect on that, was that a sudden realization or was it something you sort of, you figured out or uh, everyone wants to be a director, right? And it's like, well, what am I best at? Yeah, exactly. I had written a story, uh, a movie. It was, it was intended to be a 30 minute short. It was called Clown Boy, talk about misfits. So it was about a boy who was born as a clown who has a mother who is not a clown uh, and he's trying to make his way through the world. He's, he starts at a new school. You can kind of understand where that story comes from, from things I talked about earlier. But I really loved my story, but I had a buddy who wrote a, a, another 30 minute short about a man who saw him, an old man who saw himself as a medieval wizard living in the Midwest and how he comes in contact with a young boy who has just been displaced from New York City living in Oklahoma and they become best friends. And I, it just like, it just really drew me in. And, you know, I either was too scared to make mine or I was more compelled to make his, but I, I decided that I wanted to help him realize his movie. I had a lot of good story notes for him. And so I, we became collaborators on the script. So I didn't feel like, oh, it's not mine. I mean, I felt like I was contributing as much creatively to this project as I could. I see big ideas in the world. And I'm, and I have to help execute them. And how did, and how did things start to develop from there when you made that realization? So from that point, I was just seeking out projects that I could be a part of, and you know, that both on the um, creative side and on the execution side. So it was important to me to, to be in both sides of it. And then there's this other piece of it, which goes back to my deep desire and interest in caring about what other people care about. I found myself randomly in school getting involved in these uh, sort of trendsetter market research groups. My buddy's cousin was hosting for like Sky Vodka and Converse Shoes. And I was fascinated going into these focus groups, like hearing what other people had to say. I would contribute my own ideas, but I was fascinated hearing what other people had to say. So I started to 
dig into that a little bit more and found myself do, doing work, doing trend research for some of these big companies. And my job was to find all the people that I thought were the misfits and outliers and the crazy ones and get their input. And it sounds very familiar to you, I'm sure. And write up these reports on, on you know, what music they're listening to and uh, what they're doing for recreation. And, you know, one of them was called the, uh, the L Report. And there was another group called Youth Intelligence, which eventually got sold to the um, agency CAA. And um, I felt very lucky to be involved with these companies. So I started to bring in marketing into this mix of my interests professionally um, and care tremendously about audiences in the mix of movies too, not just about the filmmaker and getting it executed. So around the same time, I went to Sundance Film Festival for the first time and Hamptons Film Festival. And I saw that there's this playground for film lovers where they get to watch movies and then they hang out and you get to meet directors and celebrities. And I just was fascinated by this. So all these things were starting to converge and I started volunteering for a film festival in New York City that had just uh, started. It was called the Gen Art Film Festival. Um, it was sort of bringing the best of the best of the other festivals to New York for a young, um, you know, upwardly mobile uh, community of, of, of um, tastemakers in the city, basically. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, to be frank. Uh, right? Like, I just knew that all these things mattered to me. And after school, I ended up location managing some movies and producing actually our last film from school after school had ended. So I eventually made my way back to New York City um, and was temping. And I found myself temping at Miramax Films in the late 90s. Miramax being a bad word these days, but the movies we were making were incredible. And the job I was doing was market research. And it just kind of happened to, it was my flow. I didn't, it was a temp job that I was offered. And they invited me to come in full time. Here's the thing, here I am yet again at the intersection of the creative and the business, if you will. So when you're doing market research on a movie, you're getting feedback to make the movie better. I can tell you how the film Life is Beautiful originally ended but it's better now for what it is. I, I saw filmmakers like Jane Campion cry because of the feedback on her movie, but the movie ended up better because of it. And then also we would keep uh, marketing uh, insights that we would use for the uh, you know, push of the movie. And this was fascinating. I loved that job for um, my access to that, that caliber of content and, and also being at that, again, at that intersection of, you know, what makes good storytelling and how do you, optimize sharing that with audiences. So when, you, when you've been working on this, I understand you've also dabbled in magic as well. Right? Oh my God, the magic was in my youth. So okay. I- Do you still pull you things know, out of a hat? <laughs> absolutely, I think, you know, the, what I pull out of my hat more than anything over the course of my career is, the, is that journey that I don't really, you know, that it takes unexpected turns. So, you know, jumping way ahead, I mean, I've been working in virtual reality more recently as well. And, you know, I would have never guessed that that's what I would do. But like the technology aspect of everything is probably the magic. Now, I can't remember the precise term for this, but forest bathing? Shinrin yoku. Because you mentioned, you, you know, I know you've got this, this nature connection and needing to get out and trail walking and stuff. But I thought this would be intriguing because this is something completely new to me. So I'd love to hear sure. what you're about. I'm, I'm by no means an, an expert. You know, the concept of Shinrin-yoku is, um, and it, it comes from Japan, though I'm sure many cultures have, you know, similar things or just don't even have to name it, um, is this idea of really immersing yourself in nature and letting nature do its due course on, you know, your well-being. You know, I find that meditation, people think about meditation just, you know, from a breathing and emptying the mind standpoint. I think meditation comes in a lot of different forms. I think for me, mountain biking is, is very meditative because it's very flowy and, you know, I can't, I can't really be thinking about like other things. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. I also like to meditate on my own physicality and like help release muscle tension. I think therefore what I'm saying is it's about paying attention, being in the moment. And so when you're quote unquote, forest bathing, you are really using all of your senses when you're in nature. So you're really listening with intention and you're starting to hear 
birds that maybe you didn't hear before, or the wind rustling in the trees, things that we take for granted that we generally aren't allowing to the surface when we're out, even when we're on hikes or in nature. Another big, big one is smell. So really paying attention to it. So um, there's a difference between breathing through your nose and actually intentionally smelling. And you will start to pick up other things when you intentionally smell. My wife thinks that I have uncanny sense of smell. Bad example, but recently we had a dead rat in the house and I, I set, smelled it before a dog. Smells like rotting yeah. vegetables, right? Uh, no, rotting vegetables actually, because I've been composting, is, um, does not smell so bad if you do it appropriately. So I've been, you know, I, I think I've taken, I, things aren't really gross to me anymore. I think everything's a process in nature and the world and I try not to be offended by like smells, you know, like you, they, they tell you things. There, there's things you can know about your own well-being and we've lost that connection with our own intuitions about our own selves because we're so externally focused. So back to forest bathing, I think that it helps, it helps to really get us in tune with ourselves to be in tune with nature. In fact, you reminded me of something when you were just talking about the smell of things and nothing smells bad anymore. That speaks quite a lot around, uh, there's the philosophy, there's that picture called the vinegar tasters. So there's, there's three people sitting around the vinegar and there's... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so you've got Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism. And, you know, they all have a different experience. And, you know, two of them are saying it's sour, but then someone's just going, no, this is amazing. I'm, I'm living, I'm tasting something. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I know I'm alive. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. I often think that when the weather's bad or, you know, something's not right. It's like, no, this is just life. It's the ups and downs and it's kind of, it's all good. Right. The, the heat this weekend has, um, I've been appreciated, you know, appreciating being a shut in because I've been working on this creative project and having the shades pulled down and hunkering down, it's been perfect. But to your point about the vinegar tasters, this goes, going back to um, my youth, um, actually, I can distinctly remember the first time that I crawled up onto the counter, opened the cabinet and tasted every spice that was in uh, the cabinet. It was, it was such an adventure. It was such an adventure. I was a little thrown off by the vanilla extract because it burned. I didn't really understand that alcohol thing yet at that age. But I think that that, that says a lot for my uh, journey. I had a very similar experience, except I thought, you know, we've got this thing in the UK called custard. So it's not frozen yeah. custard. It's, it's like creme anglais and it's yellow and you get brought up on it as a kid and it's yellow. Uh, and I thought I'd found a tub of it one day and someone said, yeah, have a big spoonful of that. <laughs> it was mustard. Oh my God. Mustard though, by the way, is one of my favorite tastes. Traditional yellow Heinz brand mustard is a favorite. I also enjoy drinking olive juice and pickle juice. I, yeah. And I've been, we've been cooking martini. a lot because. Dirty martinis for, for Jeffrey then. Yeah, except minus the vodka. I mean, I'd, I'll drink the vodka, but I actually, you know, prefer. The reason I like a dirty martini is just because of the olives. So this theme of nature, experience nature, whether it's dead rats or forests, seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of your work. It is, you know, I'll, I'll go back for a second to just talk about like what I did after college, because I think this context is, is somewhat relevant. Like, you know, this company, Gen Art, that I was um, volunteering at their film festival, I eventually ran the company over a decade later. Tell me a little bit more about GenArt. GenArt was founded as a nonprofit to connect young artists um, who are having trouble getting their work shown or sold with young tastemakers in initially New York City who were culturally hungry but didn't really know how to access the art world. Like they, they felt like art openings weren't really their scene, they weren't really comfortable there. Is a, is a gallery a museum? Is it a store? Like, I don't understand what's going on here. So Jenner put on these events to showcase emerging artists to these young professionals. They were doctors, lawyers, bankers, et cetera, maybe ad execs, and, and give them a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, see this, the new work um, in a comfortable setting, a fun social setting. And it created this spark of energy that really was brand new. Um, to have these two two groups together, um, and and they were encouraged to continue to like do it, and they branched out into 
uh, fashion and started showcasing emerging fashion designers um, and and also film and and you know creating an opportunity to show the best of the best to this young influential tastemaker crowd. Uh, I got involved as a volunteer at the very first film festival, but very quickly got more involved in programming and eventually um, uh, joined them after my time at um, at Miramax Films in building the company. Uh, to be a national company, to have uh, membership in five U.S. cities, um, to eventually do hundreds of events a year. But our signature programs continue to be like an anchor film festival in New York, our fashion shows during Fashion Week, where we would be in the tents and showcasing the next, I mean, not the next, but we showcased Zach Posen, uh, Rebecca Taylor, Philip Lim, like Rodarte. These were the the fashion designers that were discovered by us first. We did all the casting for the TV show Project Runway because it was a Miramax television show. So I brought that to the table. And we really created an opportunity for, for artists to sell their work to these young professionals that otherwise would have bought art at, I don't know, Ikea, Target, you know, for the same amount of money, maybe even. So brands started to be really interested in what we were doing because they were, you know, we had like absolute vodka giving us alcohol and uh, Heineken giving us beer. Um, and then, you know, uh, Altoids would sponsor our film festival and then suddenly Chrysler's giving us money and then suddenly we're doing custom programs for the brands and then suddenly we're the first people to pop up week-long lounges at places like Sundance Film Festival and we're, we, be, we became an experiential marketing firm. But the mission, and this is what's critical about Gen Art, we were mission-oriented from day one. As we evolved and started to become marketers for the brands, we didn't touch a thing if it didn't support emerging talent. Uh, you know, I, I, and, and I was like exuding this energy of like constantly being able to expose people to new technologies and new uh, artists. And, and it gave me great pleasure to do that. But I wasn't necessarily taking care of myself. And I wasn't getting enough of that input. And I didn't know, I would, I thought the input was more culture, more exposure to new things. Like I had forgotten how important nature was to me as a kid when I would just sit and look at rocks. I wanted to be a geologist. I was fascinated by erosion and the way that water would carve out pathways. You know, these were fundamental. Th I, would, I would stare at a piece of grass for hours. I would cloud bust in the sky, you know, stargaze. I had forgotten about all of that when I got to the city. It was all about going to events, getting exposed to new people, new places. Um, you know, culture, which was great and important. And frankly, I, I think that there's too many culture void places in America, which is a part of our problem and why we're having so many issues over here. But I went on this journey and I was so embedded in that I had to extract myself from the city ultimately in order to start to rediscover that side of myself. And when I got to Los Angeles, I found myself riding my bike and swimming in the ocean every morning. And then eventually I moved to the other side of town. And now I'm like, you know, later today, I'm going to the mountains. Having that balance has really been important to my uh, creativity, longevity, and that, and, and, and well, frankly, my like anxiety too, right? Because now I actually know how to self-soothe. And uh, when you're bombarded by mostly very exciting things. So when I talk about anxiety, it's usually in the form of, I have so many exciting things that I want to do. How do I do them all? Well, the first thing I need to do is go for a hike or a mountain bike ride or some sit in the grass and then it will come clear to me and making room to let your brain just like process and not just constantly chase after the butterflies. Then later, um, I'll just jump ahead. Like I found myself running virtual reality at Discovery Channel. My, I fell in love with virtual reality because here's this technology that, well, human beings have been sharing stories with each other vicariously since the beginning of time. It's important. It's a fundamental need. It should be in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, storytelling. It's how we know how to live our lives. It's how we check ourselves that we're good people, et cetera, um, that we're, we're going to survive. So we've, we've, we've evolved it from oral storytelling to cave paintings, to audio, radio, movies, photographs, et cetera. Virtual reality is just the confluence of these things. 
that has, uh, it's just moving us closer to want, being able to vicariously really step into each other's lives. It is some core fundamental need that we have. I don't know why, but we're just pushing closer and closer to wanting to get into each other's skin. My first virtual reality experience was for this movie, Wild, um, with Reese Witherspoon. And you're sitting on top of a mountain. And I took the headset off and I couldn't reconcile the fact that I was inside this virtual headset, but I was outdoors and I was having the feelings that I normally have from being outside. And I, I don't know, there was something about that moment that also spun up this thing of like, well, technology isn't unnatural because we as human beings natural in this world have created it. What, how we define what's natural is sort of subjective and by no means do I think we can solely rely on the evolution of this sense of what is natural. We need Mother Earth in balance with this technology that's happening. So this moment in the headset sort of brought those two things together. Okay, we can, we can keep moving forward technologically, but we also need to protect and take care of Mother Earth. So when I landed at Discovery Channel running virtual reality and I had this opportunity to make content that was about exploration of the cultures and the places of the planet, then I decided that needs to be my focal point for my career moving forward is that it always has to involve those things because they've been fundamental to me and they're fundamental to humanity. And I'm, I'm very worried that people are losing touch. Mm. And I think that the pandemic is actually enabling people to forcing people to reconnect with that. Yep. And yet now we're also at the precipice of it being inaccessible because we've eradicated so much of it. And, and now, so there's, there's so few, like California, you can't reserve a campground this summer. They're all taken. You have to spend an arm and a leg to rent a, a home somewhere. So only the wealthy are really getting access to the outdoors. And I'm worried that that's gonna be a part of the future. Anyway, that's a tangent. So yeah, so I've been focused on storytelling projects and marketing projects and technology projects that are I, that now also bring in the outdoors, the environment, humanity, culture. These are fundamentally also important pillars of who I am in my career and my journey. It, it actually feels just talking to you today that you've, you've been drawing this stuff closer together for quite a long time. You're sort of converging all of these interests and, and, and getting to a moment where it, it feels like it's starting. Well, we're, we're, always, we're always on this quest I, to, to try and bring all those dots together and join them together somehow. Feels like that's some direction of travel. It is, you know, I had been advised about this, this concept, another Japanese concept, Ikigai, which is sort of the living your fullest potential, um, where all the things that you care about in life manifest through your professional career, your home career. You know, I, be, I feel very lucky. Like most of my friends haven't had the career journey I've had where my passion is my work always, it has been. And so, you know, if my wife, if it's late at night and my wife says, stop working, like I'll say, would you tell a painter to stop painting? Maybe I'm building run of shows for some event or I'm, you know, coming up with a strategy, a marketing strategy for a brand or whatever, but like, it's my painting and I'm really in the flow of it and I'm excited about it. And so when I can feel that way, then yeah, I feel like I've converged these things. The technology has been an interesting journey because, you know, I've always had sort of just one foot in the, in the world of tech. Like I, I see it and I pull it in, whether it's Texas Instruments, you know, creating the first uh, virtual cinema projector, or when MySpace was the king of the social networks, I said, you need to have a film vertical to promote filmmakers the way you're promoting musicians. So we launched that with them, you know, or um, working with Canon cameras when they, you know, um, filmmakers I was working with were using Canon DSLRs to make their movies and Canon didn't even know. So eventually ended up working with Canon on releasing the, their line of cinema cameras, which by the way, were great, but people still just wanted to use the DSLRs. That was the whole point. You know, the technology journey is the part I think that is ever evolving and will never really nicely wrap up because it's just like that's the portal into the unknown future that kind of excites the humanity part of what I care about, which is coalescing more in, in my career and my own personal journey. There's something really interesting coming out of this 
conversation for me. And I'm going to start playing back some of the stuff I think I'm hearing because it's like, I'm so reluctant to use this word because it's one of those words that you see a lot, but it rarely gets used properly. And it's holistic. It genuinely okay. feels like you're bringing lots of different influences. It sounds like you're very grounded, but at the same time, you've kind of got the technology there as well. So when you're talking to me about some of your experiences on VR, it reminds me of a project when we were looking at the future of aging and we were looking at housebound uh, elderly people who could no longer get up and go for a walk. And, you, you, you know, there are so many things just like through well-being, but engaging with nature has a profound effect on your well-being. And it was looking at the role of VR to actually oh, yeah, yeah. some of that trickery just right. to give you that sense of space and place and, you know, being in the trees or wherever you want to be could actually have a very profound effect on just how you feel, how we heal and all the rest of it. And so I'm just joining some dots myself, listening to some of your stories that, that are kind of really quite profound. And on the other hand is I'm reluctant to, to play some of this back to you because I actually feel some of those things myself, but this is about you and not about me. No, please. I, this is, this is the, flow of this conversation. I mean, I, I appreciate that, you know, you're somebody who gets it because, you know, that's when I, that's when I'm more of, you know, an outlier in arms as opposed to a misfit. When I was running innovation strategy for this um, startup film studio, uh, you know, they, they charged me with laying a foundation of future proof, proofing the company and making sure that we were um, thinking, you know, activating and executing all the latest trends. I mean, there's the, so the film industry has not been very good at innovating. In fact, it's taken the tech industry to butt up against the film industry for it to, you know, really start to expedite certain things. So when I was working at this film studio, I was working on projects like, um, you know, helping with, with discovery. So it, it t let's talk about two things that I think most consumers find frustrating. One, you're, you know you want to watch a particular movie, but you don't know where it is. And you're like flipping through all the, and you're Googling and it tells you one thing and you go through your Apple TV and tells you another or whatever. Um, there are technologies that have been evolving, like this company just watched that really help you to really find where something is in, at any given moment, whether it's in a theater or um, online somewhere. Uh, and that creates data products that then help studios market more efficiently. But number two, and probably more importantly, the first time you hear about um, any kind of a content, a concert, a movie, a television show that you want to have access to, or a book that's going to be released, where do, you, where do you write that down so that you remember when it comes out? You know, where's the native uh, app on the device that allows you to cue that and then it just notifies you? How many millions of dollars do film studios spend trying to retarget me when you, they had me at the first trailer, but they, they neglected to actually capture me? or enable me to capture myself, to put it as a, you'll, you might've noticed recently that in the pandemic in particular, with all these virtual events, um, everybody's now finally putting an add to calendar button on everything because they recognize that we as the consumers want the power to remind ourselves when something's going to happen with ease. Small little, small little innovation, really simple, but it, has, it will save people a lot of money and a lot of heartache trying to remember things. So I found myself in, you know, with the title of, of you know, head of innovation, um, bringing these things to the table within the context of this new film studio, but the, but the old systems made it really challenging and the cultures that people came from. And so yet again, I was a misfit. You know, it was my job title, yet somehow I'm a misfit. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to evangelize these things that we need to be doing to stay ahead Here's a little uh, question for you, Jeff. Um, what do you think the value is in companies of having a misfit around? Um, I think that, you know, misfits, crazy ones, outliers, et cetera, um, it's, it's important, just as important to have those people around as, um, you know, your CFO. I mean, it should probably be a it, oftentimes it is the CEO, right? Is the visionary. And then the, that person surrounds themselves with people that can execute and you have this, uh, you know, diversity of skill sets. 
well, you know, I think call it a call it a misfit or just call it an innovation team. Um, I think that it's really important to have somebody who's really their job is to constantly be optimizing the machine. They may or may not have the skills to actually execute on the optimization. I think I'm one of those people that has was born into, you know, uh, a father who loves photography, but is an accountant, you know, uh, who, so I, I've have, I am left and right brain and I, I can do both. I can, I can see the vision or I can take the vision and then I can find a pathway through when I have willing collaborators. So that's, I think it's less, let, let's talk about not focusing on the importance of having a misfit. What's important is having collaborators who are open-minded to the misfits, who seek out the misfits when they're, when they're problem solving. Um, it's like your own internal creative problem solving team your own little think tank internally. Now, a lot of companies nowadays just, you know, in every job description, it's like innovative thinker. But the reality is most people don't have the brain space, the time or the experience, the uh, diversity of, of professional touch points, the relationships to truly bring that kind of thinking to the table. And I'm not saying that I'm that either necessarily, but, um, but having that kind of a role or department or dedicated time set aside for each individual or department um, is really important. I think you're absolutely right. I think when you look at kind of what we're trained for, if you're to follow a conventional path, most of that stuff gets educated out of you. Which I think I probably have escaped that. Uh, I've parachuted out of that every single time. Yeah. So when that film studio was starting to shift, I was like one of the first to go, not at my own choice. They eradicated my position. I actually struggle with wanting to become a little more entrenched. At Discovery, I was excited to build a 10-year career there. Unfortunately, they decided to kill the virtual reality program. And as they were reorging, there just was nowhere else for me to go. So I, I find myself parrot sort of parachuting and then I have to land somewhere new. So that I'd, I'd love to zoom in on that. When you think you're on a path, you go, I was about to invest 10 years into that and something outside of your control pulls the plug. It's like, what goes on for you in situations like that? So at first, you know, I, I think that the teased kid from elementary school gets precious and hurt. Did I do something that didn't allow this to happen? I mean, every time it's been out of my control, it was because of the recession. It was because um, a client stopped spending money on something or a strategy shifted, a corporate strategy shifted. Uh, but I do wonder at times like, ugh, you know, like nobody cares about what I care about. But innovation always seems to get that um, in some way, shape or form. So I, I guess I start to, I fall into more of this acceptance of like, okay, it's not personal, but it is personal because I chose this journey or it chose me, you know, I'm on this ride. So I've, I'm not a surfer, but I am a mountain biker. I try to treat it a little bit more like that where I'm just like, okay, it's just a flow. And I, I, I went to a, I heard a guy speak once who, who was a serial entrepreneur. And he said, if, you have, if you're entrepreneurial spirited, every five years, you're gonna have an, something like this happen to you, whether it's because you started a company and sold it and are moving on, or because something failed, or you, you know, if you're in a company, like the department shifts or whatever, you better just start getting good at it and used to it, is basically what he said. Every five years, you're going to experience this. So I have gotten better at it and less, you know, it doesn't, it makes me less anxious. Look, the next day after I left that film studio, a dog came out of the park across the street from my house and sat at my front door. He was a mutt. Somebody abandoned him. He this became my, my new client, my new job, that first day after that job. The universe said, you made, this was the right thing to happen, right? Uh, after discovery, uh, I was really confident that I would just go find another job in immersive media, but as, a, as an executive. But the reality was, um, for the same reason that discovery shut down their division, everybody was pulling back. So I had to accept that my, my journey in VR was maybe going to go on hold and I needed to tap into other things that I was interested and experienced with. Right. Um, but I do feel like I was, I was more emotionally prepared for 
um, the pandemic because of my experiences already working from home, already, um, you know, able to navigate, you know, a world outside of a nine to five job. More, most recently, the project that I've been working on has also been taking a lot of these deep passions of mine and bringing them together. So I got, I was just before the pandemic, um, I was working on uh, the release of a new movie that was going to do a roadshow release, which is a an old but new model or a new but old model of mo of touring a movie around city by city, like you would a band. Finding that endemic audience that really cares about the subject matter and getting them excited about coming out and, and hanging out together in real life. So all things experiential were, were popping again before um, the pandemic. And that was after virtual reality really where I sh started to shift my focus. The way I saw it is that immersive media is a part of the um, experiential universe. There's a lot in common between putting on a headset, especially in social environments in a headset. Two nights ago, I was hanging out in a web VR experience, uh, which is basically like a game engine, but through your browser, just arrowing around. And I was talking with um, the uh, director of this movie, Lawnmower Man, from back in the day. And it's, so it's becoming very ubiquitous. Like you're not gonna ultimately need to necessarily put a headset on. But in any case, th there's been a lot of tracking of like immersive theater and live experiential events and, you know, paralleling the virtual reality world. And people are just craving this like, you know, like, you know, we talk about the experience economy, but where does that come from? Well, it's like, going back to nature, it's like, we are exploratory people creatures, exploratory creatures. Like we have this instinct to want to like see what's around the corner, but we constantly are stunting ourselves. And I think that all these technologies have suddenly also enabled us, every human being to actualize their creativity. Yeah. Because everybody's a creative being, but now they're, they're given, you know, it's like, oh, if I had the tools for making music today, when I was a kid, I would have thrown the video camera away. I would have been making music. You know, but I, I found it too challenging to learn how to play like the guitar. I played guitar, I played drums and piano, but I never pushed it far enough. But if it was technology helping me through that, like I would have done it. And we see more and more of that today. People are craving creating and consuming each other's experiences and the experiences of the world. And that's why also people's desire to be in the outdoors is tracking upward alongside technology alongside immersive experiential events these are all and then the pandemic kind of put a giant pause on this but it's actually accelerating virtual experiences through people are going to be much more open to all things virtual after this it's accelerating the appreciation for the outdoors and so this project that i've been working on right now has taken this roadshow for this movie called the dark divide which stars the um comedian David Cross, but in a dram dramatic role. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a movie about uh, a man who goes on an expedition through the, uh, the wilderness in Washington state after his uh, wife passes from cancer. And she actually has set him up to go on this journey unbeknownst to him. And he gets a letter and it's like a grant for him to go study butterflies because he's a leopard, leopard adopterist, something like that. So the whole movie is following a little bit of a fish out of water as he's figuring out how to go on this journey and be with himself, but also meeting people along the way who have, um, I know you like this word cognitive diversity, but think differently from him. He's a, a lover of insects and protection of species, but he comes across loggers and has to have conversations with them or motor, motorbike uh, cyclists. You know, it's, it's a great movie for this moment in America where everybody's been cooped up inside and they feel like, you know, they, they wanna be out and they're like, there's going through something transformational, they're going through grieving. So that through the movie, they get to go on this journey along with him as he experiences this thing. And then also as we're about to come up against uh, the election, it shows you how to talk to people who think differently than you or to be a little bit more open-minded. So this is the painting that I'm painting right now that's keeping me up um, to the wee hours of every night and waking up at sunrise every day. Amazing. So we've got 11 days. So 11 days before the debut, it will be out on iTunes and Amazon and all those platforms, I believe worldwide on November 10th. So we're donating 
a portion of the film's profits to the National Wildlife Federation. Amazing. Well, let's see, let's see where it, if I'm parachuting at the end of this one. I have high hopes that we will build the appropriate buzz in lieu of theatrical, in lieu of film festivals. This would have been a film festival movie. You know, I love film festivals. I wish that could have been a part of it. And don't forget that it's about butterflies, right? So there won't be any buzz. But yes, you, you may want some of that chaos theory that that butterfly wings flap creates a tsunami. I love that. Awareness. That's it. Oh my God, I'm bringing that to our uh, producer's call tomorrow. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I first saw your post, I just, I, I checked it out and uh, it really looked like a beautiful story. And it did feel like just very timely. I always have to ask this question. There is one thing with the, with the Sense Network, you know, our whole purpose is to make things better and to make better things. Is there anything that the Sense Network could do to help you? You know, I've really enjoyed being a part of this community for over a decade. You know, working on the projects has always, you know, it continues to help open, keep my brain, my brain open and active in ways that sometimes aren't, you know, it's not happening in other places. It, help, it helps me with my other projects. You know, ultimately, I mean, share the trailer. Share, share the Dark Divide trailer. That is the best thing you could do. The, the user journey flow goes from there. Um, trailers are the number one tool for, for people becoming familiar with the movie. So that's a very practical thing. Some things aren't very innovative. Some things are tried and true. Yeah, like they say, if it's not broken, don't try and fix it. And if you watch the movie, obviously, like, you know, it'd be great to, to get a great review if you watch it somewhere. And um, uh, if you need somebody like me on your next project, that's another way that they can help me because I'll be unemployed after this. <laughs> we'll try and sort that out. Uh, I understand you're about to head up a mountain now, is that right? Yes, I am. Today, uh, the rest of the day, I'm going to go sit under some trees. Jeffrey, thank you so much. That's been an awesome conversation. Thank uh, you, Jeremy. This has been a blast. Thank you for, for opening up today's uh, Brain Portal. That brings us to the end of a great conversation with Jeff. Please check out the trailer for The Dark Divide and join the virtual cinema experience. Take some inspiration to reconnect with nature, get outside, walk up a mountain, or take a forest bath. We'll be back soon with another mind-expanding conversation. Thank you for tuning in to The Sense Network. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did like it, we'd love to hear what you think. So please leave us a comment and share it with your friends. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, at The Sense Network. And if you want to get hands-on with an innovation project to make things better and make better things, join the Sense Network, linked in the description. Thank you for joining and see you next time.